Hello, I'm Mark Steiner. My guest this hour is one of my favorite writers that I love to sit around the house and debate and talk about the things that she writes, and that's Bell Hooks. She has a new book out called Bone Black, Memories of Girlhood, and one of her most recent books, Killing Rage, Ending Racism, is now out in paperback. And Bell Hooks, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm glad to be here. I hope you're feeling well. I am. Good. This book, Bone Black, um, after reading it, it just it seemed to me like it's it was... Um, a book like none other that you've ever written, and that it felt to me as if there was something that was burning inside of you to get out, and and it's out now. Am I wrong about that, and why now? Well, I think it's exactly what the forward tries to talk about, is that there's been increasing interest on, on girlhood, and particularly a lot of the work on girlhood is sort of trying to suggest that black girls have greater self-esteem than other groups of girls because we often are more outspoken or what have you. And I felt this real need to tell a narrative of black girlhood and to say that some of these things that are perceived in mainstream culture as signs of self-esteem may not actually be signs of of self-esteem but may be simply different cultural ways of inhabiting um, domestic space and that, in fact, black girls, it seems to me, suffer similar dilemmas of identity and who who are we? I mean, in many ways, Bone Black is so much about that sense of trying to define who I am. And mm-hmm. uh, in part, I, I, I've written this book because so many of my students um, express this, this concern with issues of identity and how, how did you get to do what you're doing. And so it seemed to me to be a time in my own writing career to... To, to take to take time and to pause and to remember those things that helped me develop myself as a thinker and a writer. It's very poetically written as well. Well, I think one of the, the big issues, Mark, in our culture is we always want writers to have one voice. Right, right. And I feel like one of the things that I've, I've always, I think, envied about jazz and about the music world is the sense of having musical forms where people feel that they can use lots of different techniques. They can use lots of different mediums in a way that I I feel like, particularly if you're black and a writer in this culture, people want you to have one voice. And in in my case, it's been interesting because my critical essay voice is such a clear, in in many ways, non-poetic voice. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. it's very succinct and precise and exact often. So... um, I was really actually surprised myself when this book um, came out of me in such a, a more abstract way. Not that my poetry, because many people forget that I was a poet before I began writing That's the critical right. essays, and that my poetry tend to vary between using black vernacular or uh, using a more abstract poetic um, style. And so in many ways, Bone Black is a combination of, of those two things. It's exciting to, to not only feel that as a country readers are growing in our country so that I think my readers have no trouble, many of them, making the leap between my critical essays and then this particular poetic memoir, which is not an autobiography in the traditional sense. It's a poetic memoir. Um, it takes memories that were just stayed in my mind. I tell people all the time, I said, you know, when you tell somebody about your life, you usually go back to certain memories that stand out. You don't usually tell them a chronological thing like, well, you know, in 1954 I was doing such and such. Most of us feel our lives have been shaped by very particular memories Mm -hmm. that stand out, that define 
why we go down a certain road later on in life. As, as my best friend said when she looked at the cover of Bone Black, she said, you know, you're still buying those shoes. <laughs> you know, I was... <laughs> I was thinking about that when you wrote in. There's so much stuff you read, you know, you forget where you read it sometimes. But uh, when you were describing yourself as a melded two, (laughs) (laughs) with your shoes, I wondered, you know, that does seem in some ways to be like a black thing in America shoes. Well, I think. Do you know what I'm saying? It's interesting. I would say, Mark, it's often a combined race and class thing. Uh One of the things that I remember about growing up is both cheap shoes that water you know, seep through the, the seat, and oftentimes shoes that were too little. And I, I remember elder black people often with feet that were hurting. And mm-hmm. if you remember the Jesse B. Simple stories. Oh, um, yes, absolutely. A yeah. lot of them were about his feet hurting. And so I think that, you know, many people forget that because black people in America have often, especially before the 1900s, been an agrarian people, we've been a walking people, and a lot of shoes are not made for walking. <laughs> and so I think that there is a whole... Um, psychohistory in African-American culture around shoes and um, trying to find um, shoes that are comfortable to live in. And I, I, th- I think it, I always thought that that was such a great metaphor um, mm-hmm. for both race and class. As, um, it was used in the simple stories, you know, the whole question of tired feet and being on your feet. Right. Right. And I was thinking about my, my wife. We teach her and call her a Melda too sometimes, too, which I found very funny because she also has this shoe thing. <laughs> she, she, she's also the one who turned me on to your books uh, about 10, 11, 12 years ago. And uh, that uh, she always she said one question she wanted to ask you if I got on the air with you. She said, uh, what does Bella Hooks do when she's not reading, lecturing and talking? Well, you know, I I don't know. It's funny because I I feel like I'm in this moment of life crisis. I'm 44 years old, Mm -hmm. and I live by myself. And for a long time, for 15 years, I lived with a poet and writer, Nate Mackey. And um, by myself, a lot of the times, I, I read all the time. And I think, I was thinking just today, in fact, that had my life really changed that much from childhood because my my childhood. Um, life was so centered around reading, mm-hmm. and I find that I'm I'm still much, very much have a life that's centered around reading and and thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. I see a lot of movies. Uh, you know, I I have a new book that came out right after Bone Black about movies, um, real to real race, sex, and class at the movies. I have not read that. But... Movies are my a big passion for me. Do you, t- do you think, as I do, Mark, that I really think movies are the new pedagogy that people feel they're learning about life from movies? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I think we do. And I think that we get some of our images of what we are and who we are from movies and what we should think we get from movies. I, I do, too. And I, I find that both exciting and disturbing. Very frightening at times, depending on what those images are that are on the screen. And you spend a lot of time in your work and articles I've read talking about that whole idea of what we see on the screen. And I, I was actually going to get to this later, but since we brought it up now, let me just <laughs> talk about it for a minute. I mean, w- I was really interested that in one of the essays, and and please forgive me for forgetting which essay it was and which book it was in, but you were writing about um, I'll Fly Away, Oh yeah, the TV mm-hmm. show. And you really, I mean, I, I remember when I watched that um, movie, the TV show, I'll Fly Away, I was very taken by A, the acting, and B, the power of this woman who was the servant that I saw in a different relationship because of the power of her writing and her thinking and her relationship. It seemed to me you still found it very offensive in the sense that she had to be the servant. Did I read that wrong? 
Well, not so much offensive as wanting to call attention to people with to the fact that often the images that we see, we have more black people ever than ever before on television or in movies. Right. And more people of color in general, but often the the roles that they play are are still within the 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 convenient hierarchy of how we think about race and and gender, you know, so that we can have a powerful black woman in the role of servant, but we don't have a powerful black woman in the role of um, the, the 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 love interest or or what have you. That becomes much more problematic for people to think of, you know. For example, Mark, I often sit and think of myself. Well, have I ever seen? any image of a black woman on television or film that is anything like what I am and mm-hmm. who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, that my, this, this life I'm leading as a public intellectual and critical thinker and writer in this culture. So I think that, that it's, it's not so much that we, we, we clearly know that black people are servants and have been servants at times. The question becomes when that's the only image of ourselves that can be endearing to a, a mass public viewing audience, you know? Is there any film that you can mention, especially a film that perhaps was written and or directed by somebody who is white and not black that you think grabs the heart of something that we haven't, that we, we very, very rarely see? Well, one of my favorite films is John Sayles' film, um, Brother from Another Planet. Oh, I love and that movie. John God. Waters' film, too, Hairspray, I think, mm-hmm. had raised just really exciting and meaningful questions about race and, and blackness. And certainly, I, I feel in many ways, John Waters' Hairspray personified um, what I was talking about in Black Looks when I was saying that for racism to change, everyone has to learn how to love blackness. And his film, Hairspray, was so much about that. Mm-hmm. No, I, that's interesting. I, I never thought about hairspray until I read that in your book that you you use that as an example. I mean, Brother from Another Planet is one that I think was one of the great movies of all time. I think John Sayles did a brilliant job with that movie. I know. See, for example, I was incredibly disappointed in Lone Star because, to me, Lone Star, huh. again, was a movie that gave us all this multicultural mix. But at the end of the day, everything was still in its place. You know, the, the, the white man was still the savior of, ever, of, of everything, and everything was kind of subordinated to him. And he was a great character. He was, you know, presented as a caring and kind human being. Mm-hmm. But the sense of hierarchy, uh, the sense of things being in their place was still still there. And I think it's it's really the same with gender, that... I often have thought a great deal about the fact that we've been much more able to accept representations of women as being dominant and there being a submissive man than we actually have been able Mm -hmm. to create images and films and books of mutuality, of images that step outside the paradigms of domination. It's like we can still accept a change in the roles as long as the basic structure remains the structure of, of that saying there's always a par- par- person who's dominant and someone who's submissive. In other words, we, well, uh, you're allowed, Ian, you can make millions of dollars making the movies you want, but within these parameters, this is what we do, this is how they sell. Exactly, and I think partially because um, people, I mean, I think, one, people deny the power of movies to change our lives and to make us think differently about things, um, and that... Um, even though, you know, years ago we had that expose about, 
you know, big networks saying that they wanted to keep black people, black characters in the background. I think, for example, of a movie like The Long Kiss Goodnight and how mm-hmm. the Samuel Jackson character, throughout that film, white people are saying to him, are you stupid Are you, mm-hmm. um, by, by choice or were you just born that way? Mm-hmm. Now, on one hand, the film appears to have all this progressive stuff happening in it. But if you think about surveys that have shown that many white Americans still believe that black people are genetically inferior, that underlying sort of sense that not only do we expect this black man to be goofy and funny, but we're continually saying, were you born that way or are you just this way? It's still the sort of implication that somehow he is lower on the, you know, the brain right, right. food chain than other groups of people. Do you think that that, that, that frame of mind, that thought that um, black folks are inferior genetically, that it's just something not quite as right as it is with everybody else. Is that pervasive? Do you think that it's something that is that is unconsciously underpins where our country is? I, mean, well, I think that Andrew Hacker, in his book, Two Nations, completely and utterly documented that masses of white people feel that way. And I think it's significant that many black thinkers and scholars had said this before him, but when he, as a, a very, you know, um, a white male thinker says this, people really were able to hear him saying that, that there is a different feeling that masses of Americans of all colors have about black people, that people don't feel the same about people that are, are Native American or Asian, as they do, particularly about the descendants um, from Africa, where people really still harbor these very old notions of genetic inferiority that have been rooted in racism and white supremacy. Mark, why don't I read a little oh, please. Um, from Bone Black? Please. This is a passage about my grandfather, my mother's father. Oh, I'm glad you're going to read about him. I like this man. And Well, one of the things that I feel, Mark, is I grew up in this world with such a, a, a wonderful diversity of black masculinity, and sometimes I feel part of what has been lost um, in sort of mass media representations of a one-dimensional black masculinity is that complex um, variety that is black maleness. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just read a Please. little of this. His smells fill my nostrils with the scent of happiness. With him, all the broken pieces of my heart get mended, put together again bit by bit. He can always tell when I'm sad. He'll ask me, what have they been doing to you now? He knows that I'm a wounded animal, that they pour salt on the open sores just to hear me moan. He tells me that in the end it'll come out all right. He tells me, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I am comforted by his presence. Soot black-skinned man with lines etched deep in his face as if someone took a knife and carved them there. He's Daddy Gus, Mama's father. From her I know that he's always been gentle, that he's never been a man of harsh words. I need his presence in my life to learn that all men are not terrible, are not to be feared. He, too, is one of the faithful, one of the right-hand men of God's. When he speaks, I listen very carefully to what he is said. His voice comes from some secret place of knowing, a hidden cave where the healers go to hear messages from the beloved. He has a favorite chair by the stove in the living room. When I was much smaller, I sat there cuddled in his lap like a cat, hardly moving, 
hardly alive, so near to the stillness of death was the bliss I knew in his arms. His room is filled with treasures. So that, that, that's me writing this memory of my grandfather. So it's, and it's funny you read that one because it was the last one I read again before I went on the air here. It's funny that's the one that you picked. I just love the story about this man. He just sounds so sweet and so loving. Well, I think that we've gotten so almost addicted to images of black men as rapists, as um, violent, that it's almost it's practically impossible, in a sense, to, 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 to get people to think of black masculinity in a complex and varied way. And, and I felt um, this was very much crucial to me in writing this memoir. And um, I'll be writing, I'm writing another book right now about just my development as a writer and um, mm writing somewhat about the relationship that I shared with another black male writer again, where he was very much a nurturing presence. And I do feel that part of telling these stories is a critical intervention that is saying, you know, these are our lives in their diversity and complexity. And you wrote them in the third person as if you're just standing outside looking in. Well, actually, I I wrote Bone Black because I think we have to to tell uh, listeners that Bone Black is also about me feeling very troubled and in a dysfunctional household. And I think that so many wounded children cope with reality by thinking of life in the third person, Mm -hmm. by distancing. And in some ways, I wanted the book to convey that sense of and flavor of childhood, of how you survive a difficult childhood. And I mean, and it's, it is amazing because I mean, the, your father in the story is clearly different than than uh, Daddy Gus. Well, my father is both on one hand the positive, you know, patriarchal provider, but he's also a, a cold, stern disciplinarian given to violence um, in order to maintain obedience and control. Just, uh, but the way you dealt with that—that that, that whole wanting to reach out to your mother when your father was beating her, and the way she stood there still. In contrast, that story that you told about when you were being beaten and you were supposed to be still, but you didn't want to be still. Which I think, again, has to do with all those different generations of, you know, I talk a lot about Christianity in this book, yeah. and growing up in a Christian home and this place of obedience and, um, you know, and just the whole, the whole sense of how, um, as I think John Bradshaw writes about so beautifully in his book, Creating Love, when he talks about the fact that the patriarchal home, there's this whole sense that the woman should be obedient to the man and children should obey. It, like this hierarchy is next in line, and there's my mother who's sort of caught between her allegiance to that older hierarchy and her desire for these children who are born in a different world to, to grasp that different world and to be freer and to you know, to think differently, but there's that constant tension, and I I think we see this in a lot of the autobiographies of immigrant um, families, mm-hmm. um, irrespective of race or, or, or nationality, those struggles with the values of a more, um, a different world coming in and the values that come out of a, a sort of old world sense of, of life. Before we go to the phones here, I, I just you mentioned patriarchy, and I just want to ask you a question about that. I mean, many women, especially many women who are involved in the feminist movement and others, write about the patriarchy and about um, the world that should could change without doing away with patriarchy. When you look at history, when you look what came before us, that this is a long road. I can't think of very many societies on our planet Earth that ever lived without some semblance of patriarchy. 
uh, where women were, in some sense, not fully equal? Well, this, I think, is absolutely true, that we know very little. We know that there are um, certainly certain cultures in um, the Amazon um, where we see more mutuality practices between men and women. But to, to by and large, male domination seems to have been a central feature of social organization uh, globally in archaic societies. It's interesting. You said the Amazon. I, we did a show not long ago where I learned during that show that the reason that the Amazon River is called the Amazon River was because the Portuguese explorer who stumbled into what's now Brazil, the first thing he saw was a band of women with weapons guarding their village with other women with them. And he thought he had stumbled into the Amazons. And in fact, he'd stumbled into a world where many of the societies that have now been documented there's a greater level of mutuality, and there are actually community groups where people have not, anthropologists have not documented um, male domination. Let's go to the phone here and bring folks into our conversation. My guest this hour is Bell Hooks. And Peter in Owings Mill, you're on the air. Hi, Mark. Hi, How Peter. are you, sir? I'm fine. Uh, first time I've called your show. Um, I was listening while I was driving, mm-hmm. and um, I have a comment for Ms. Hooks. Okay. Um, I am from West Africa. Um, and I do some writing myself. Uh, I just went there and spent six weeks. I just came back about two weeks ago. And it's interesting in terms of what you talk about. Um, Having been absent from that culture and going back and spending six weeks, it's amazing to me how much I've lost touch. How how long were you apart from your culture? Uh, 17 years. 17 years, okay. Mm -hmm. And... um, one of the real reasons I went back was because the manuscript I'm trying to publish now has a lot to do with the culture. It is set in about 1859, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go back and see if there were things I could reacquaint myself with as I um, read the manuscript. Um, but I would really like to thank people like her who are writing and who are very committed to writing, um, because it is a very strange thing in the sense that oftentimes we become either successful to the point where we get dehumanized and we no longer understand the social webs and intricacies that make us what we are. Well, Peter, a lot of people have in fact said to me, but don't you think you're a little young to be writing um, an autobiography? Hmm. And and one of the reasons that I I began to write this book was I found that each year of my life as I've lived away from Kentucky, away from the small town that I've been, was raised in, and the particular even speech of my region and, and my family, what I find is memories grow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. So one of the reasons I wanted to pause and write these memories was to, to still capture them while they were vivid and meaningful to me. I, in fact, it's, it's strange that you say that. Um, in my culture, the Igbo tribe in West Africa, mm-hmm. um, twins were discarded at birth. And um, I was born a twin in 1959, Hmm. and thank God Christianity has come, uh, and people like me are still alive. Um, It it, it is amazing to me that going back home and trying to explore that that subject, some of the responses that I got, um, it it is almost as if the culture is, is... I don't know how to say it, but people here view it very differently. Uh, I think people probably have a much more romanticized version of it. Um, 
in the six weeks that I was there, uh, there was probably a week that didn't go by that some form of ritual killing or sacrifice didn't make the headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it is amazing to me that we haven't been able to bring these kinds of things out. It's almost like that culture is it's just like an embryo that's frozen in time and just waiting to be rediscovered and appreciated. Hmm. Well, I think that... Peter, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. Um, it's been very difficult, I think, for black people in the diaspora um, to bring to, to to write about our lives with a degree of of honesty and and openness because there are so many taboos against one. We don't want to say anything that that plays into the hands of white supremacist thinking. We don't want to say, you know, I I I've wounded my mom and dad a great deal by writing about things that they feel like are over with and in the past. And you know, my father today is this wonderfully tender, sweet man, very similar to. My daddy Gus that I write about, mm-hmm. um, and so you know it's 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 really a, a deep ethical issue I think to think about what do we share openly. Um, we our society has become so obsessed with prying into people's personal lives in a way that is not necessarily meaningful and productive. And I think the struggle for p- particularly people who have been subordinated by racism or or women by sexism, to be able to speak the truth of our lives is both um, a necessary act of resistance at the same time that we have to bring to that act an ethical understanding of what our confession will mean in the larger context. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner, here with Bell Hooks, talking about her latest books, Bone Black, Memories of Girlhood, Killing Rage, Ending Racism, and, and Bell, what's the name of the latest book? I'm sorry. It's in class at the movies. Oh, right, right. I have to get this book and read it, and then that's it. <laughs> it's so exciting <laughs> to talk to you, Mark, because you are a reader. It, um, people don't know that a lot of times you get on the radio and you're talking to people, and before you go on, they say, I haven't had a chance to read your book. <laughs> and it's so exciting to talk with you because you have lived with the the books and the ideas, and I appreciate that very much. Well, thank you. I, I, just, I can't dream of doing an interview unless I know what somebody's talking about. How can you talk to them? That's what I always think about. Um, one of the things I also read this morning was a, that I would like to, there's several areas I'd like to touch while we have time here. I just read an interview with you in uh, Shambhala Sun, which I found very interesting. I want to ask you a few questions about that. That is a, a Buddhist magazine, because you are a Buddhist. Well, I'm, I, I try to engage Buddhism. I say always, I remember the first time a Buddhist magazine wanted to interview me, and I said, but I don't, I don't think I'm a real Buddhist. <laughs> and they said, well, that's what everyone says. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I, I try to engage Buddhism. If you don't mind me just saying this one thing, it, it seems that when you read the work you've written in the last 10 years, especially the, um, the pieces where you really just dig deeply into feminism and white and black women and the whole issue of racism and white supremacy in America and, and, and how you just hold no bar when you go after these things. Yet in the interview here, you, it's, there seems to be a softer, sweeter bell hooks than you read in print. Well, I think there was always a more holistic bell hooks than I'm you sure. read in one I'm book. Sure. And I think that part of, again, um, I think, I think, our culture is still a very anti-intellectual culture, and as we grow, I think, in respect for our intellectuals and our critical thinkers, part of what we have to, to offer to them is the recognition that we're not our books, you know, that, 
that however much you may read a particular book, um, you don't really know everything about the author based on one book, or that um, I think that one, you know, I look at myself sometimes now with my students, and I see in them a level of militancy and passion that I think, wow, when I was 20 and I had just finished writing Ain't I a Woman, I really felt like you had to just go straight to the heart of the matter. And part of what Buddhism has has meant for me in my life and um, is realizing that um, there, that one needs different strategies for different settings. And I think that, that what people hear in my work is, is the growing and maturity that I feel I'm doing as a self. I mean, uh, a student of mine called me the other day because, uh, an old student from from when I taught at Yale, and she said she's taking a class and on film, and they weren't reading any bell hooks, and you know, and she she brought this up, and another student challenged her that oh, bell hooks was just too, um, you know, too 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 essentialist, too too strident, and um, she said you know, but bell hooks has written fourteen books. I mean, what are you t- what are you talking about specifically? And I think it's important that people realize that one changes and grows over time. And I feel like, you know, I feel particularly blessed because I feel that my books reflect that personal growth, that each book that comes is um, uh, sort of shares in some ways. If, if one is truly, you know, bell hooks, aficionado, you can see if you read all the books from, from, from beginning to where I am now, you can see the growth that's yeah. taking place book by book. And it, some of the themes that you've talked about over many books, the issues of sexism, racism in America, let me just tackle a couple of those and see where we are now with these things. Um, you spend a lot of time in many of the essays you have talking about this divide between white women and black women, that the feminist movement being mostly a white movement really did not talk to black women. As a matter of fact, it wanted to dominate black women. You wrote many times in in some of your works, unless you, I think one line I read was if you bring them to, uh, if, if you uh, if you have a, if you're an English department, you want a black member of the English department there, it's if that black member will do it the way they want you to do it. Um, how much of that is still real? And where do you think that divide is now between black women and white women, women, especially in the feminist movement? Well, one thing that I think has been completely exciting and visionary about feminist movement, more so than any social movement we've had, is that when black women and other women of color challenged white women to examine racism, many, many, many white women responded to the call. It's one of the reasons that I feel I can be so celebratory of feminism today, that it's not like we made this critical intervention of saying, you know, it's not just gender that determines your social status, it's also race and class. And the fact is, unlike many black men who turn away when we critique sexism, Unlike many white men who turn away when we critique that combination of racism and sexism, the truth is many white women didn't turn away and, and had the courage to, to go back and look at their work and their life and, and, and look at the way race and, and particularly the construction of white femininity in this society has, has often relied on um, creating an image of black women as um, the shadow, bad, negative woman figure. And I think what, to me, the feminist movement has been exemplary as a social movement in showing that one must at times change a set of ideas that you start out with. And I, I, I feel very, very positive about feminist movement and very, very sad that the forces of anti-feminist backlash are so strong that they can make it appear that there's been a failure of recognition 
of race within feminism when, in fact, there's just been just the opposite, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that also there seems to be, though, among many younger women that you may teach or that you may meet, uh, that uh, the word feminism has this negative connotation. Even those who are very strong women who will not, who will just move ahead and do what they want as women and, and forge ahead in their work in life, there's something been done where this word feminism now connotes something that's reactionary and stifling and, and, uh, and keeping women in a box that they can't get out of. But Mark, that's, I mean, I always think that there's a, sort of like a choice. You know, you have a choice when you come to feminism. You can turn on to the works of feminists who are visionary and revolutionary and who who are totally I mean look at one of my earliest books had a a chapter men comrades in struggle and I was making this argument for the fact that feminism is for everybody and men are not the enemy but if mass media is doing something about feminism it will usually choose a, a feminist who can be portrayed as anti-male over the kind of visionary writing that has come from feminists saying men must play a major role in, in, in ending racism and challenging patriarchy. So the, the problem for feminism has always been that its most visionary and, and wonderful dimensions often get masked by mass media focusing on the, the most narrow thinking uh, elements of, of feminism or, or the reformist feminism that is mainly concerned with social equality with men. I mean, revolutionary feminism is saying we need to change the culture as a whole. It's not enough for, for women to become like men, as so many of uh, movies are, are, are suggesting to us that, you know, the, the woman just wants to occupy the same space of power as men. This isn't what visionary feminism is about, but mass media doesn't bring to people visionary feminism. And that's why so many young people feel, you know, frightened of, of feminism and taking on that identity. They feel that it will alienate them from um, the culture as a whole. They feel if they're female, that it will alienate them from, from men. But in the world beyond mass media... More males than ever before are turning on to feminist thinking. Um, it's amazing to me to look at how much has changed in the last uh, 20 years. You know, when I started mm -hmm. out teaching women's studies, my classes were predominantly white, predominantly female. Now there's just as many males and people of all colors. And I think it's just, it, you know, it's just a sign that these issues of race and gender really go to the core of where people live and how they're struggling in their lives. And, you know, feminists, visionary feminists had, had the foresight to see that these were going to be the issues that were going to rock our world. And they, and they are. <laughs> now, you, you, you mentioned the issue of race. And one of the things you write also about when it comes to feminism, feminism is that the difficulty that uh, the black community has to coming with to grips with feminism, the whole thing around Nicole Brown Simpson and Anita Hill and the woman that was raped by, uh, by uh, Michael Tyson and, and all of the things around that and the whole issue with Farrakhan and women being in their place and being playing second fiddle to men, then uh, that's an issue that, that it seems to me has just begun to be attacked. Well, one of the major dilemmas of black liberation struggle is that it's always in the past articulated freedom as black men getting the right to be men. And, and the other sense of that is black men getting the right to be patriarchs. So on one hand, you have all this feminist theory coming from women of color and white women saying, critiquing patriarchy the way it damages the family. And on the other hand, we're being told patriarchy will save the black family. And so it, it's very difficult for, for people 
to engage a critique of sexism in black life because so often when a black man who's poor, who doesn't have a job or a chance of getting a job, looks at his life, he feels like he doesn't have any power. What do you mean, sexism? Uh But in fact, he does still, as a man in patriarchal society, have the freedom to exert domination in the home, um, in the streets when he harasses a woman, when he, you know, when I walk around the streets of New York City and a man of any race follows me around, Mm -hmm. taunting me, that's a form of power. We don't see women following men around, taunting them, um, (laughs) because, you know, we would be afraid that the man would turn around and hit us or rape us or, or what have you. So partially I feel there's a lot of education to be done so that people can understand the relative nature of male power, that, yes, black men as a group do not have the kind of enormous patriarchal power that white men in privileged classes experience, but neither do working-class white men. But they do have forms of power based on masculinity in, in the dailiness of life. And it's very important, I think, that we take time to share these understandings rather than just assuming that people don't want to hear about sexism in black life. I think people want to understand, and there are not enough everyday vehicles where we share information like, like this radio show. Or, mm-hmm. you know, too much is shared in books, and too many people in our culture do not read. They don't know how to read. I mean, it's becoming a lost art. It's a very scary thing to watch, especially with kids today in schools in the cities that, that, that's got to get turned around. One of the things that, that I, w- I was taken with in this whole discussion is that when you're talking about sexism in the black community, it seems that there is some hold from the deep, dark past uh, that in terms of thinking and how people view themselves when this divide between black and white women over, let's say, Nicole Brown Simpson and how so many black women you heard would say she deserved what she got. Um, She was asking for it. She shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, He shouldn't have been with her in the first place. Or not believing in Nita Hill when uh, when, uh, she said that Clarence Thomas said what he said and and, and those kind of things. And what that says about... um, um, how can I put this, the, the almost fragile position that some black women must feel in terms of what their place is in the society. But I think that this society clearly hates black women. I mean, that we're devalued. I think what I don't think that all black women are, are reactionary when it comes to domestic violence or mm-hmm. interracial dating, but let's remember that mass media seeks out specific types of black women because they conform to a stereotype, and it seems to me that one of the, the, the deepest stereotypes in our society right now is that black women are monsters, that we are Neanderthal, mm-hmm. and that a lot of times, um, I mean, it's like, you know, if you, we have to look at the role of fundamentalist Christianity in shaping people's ideas about gender and power, um, and I think that, you know, black people by and large in this society um, through religious beliefs, are often conservative. Only white people ever had a fantasy that black people weren't conservative. (laughs) Any black person growing up in a predominantly black community knew that you had conservative black people and liberal black people and radical black Mm -hmm. people. So I think that, in part, the conservative attitudes about gender that many black women, you know, voice are very similar to the conservative attitudes we would find among working-class white women. Let's face it, a lot of times, as in the case, say, one of the big New York Times news stories about the O.J. Simpson case interviewed white women lawyers, 
and then it interviewed their secretaries. But it didn't interview black women lawyers to say, what do you think about this case? So I don't think we can buy into the idea that the media construction of black women is reactionary around domestic violence and interracial dating is where many black women are, all black women are. I think that the fact is there are as many black women who support sexism and patriarchy as are, there are white women. Ernie in Ellicott City, you're on the air. Uh, good afternoon. Hi, Ernie. Uh, Ms. Hooks, uh, could you comment on the events that took place when Frederick Douglass attempted to link up with Susan B. Anthony? Uh, interesting story. Uh, well, I mean, I, I find that, that that's a good example of Frederick Douglass had a very progressive vision about gender and, re- and remains, you know, one of the black male thinkers in our history. Human really thinkers, period. Stood for women's equality, but at the same time, you know, those white women that were willing to have him into his home were not willing to have black women into their homes because black women were perceived to be sexually licentious, um, whores in a sense. I mean, I, I think that we part of why learning about sexism and racism as they come together is so important is we can see how black women and black men have had a very different history in representation, so that Frederick Douglass um, triumphed women's rights, but not in, in a way where he, he criticized those white women for their refusal to include black women. Yes, okay. Well, I was just wondering, you know, the, uh, when, we, when I went to school, uh, much of the advancements of the culture that we live in here in America and in Europe, for that matter, has always been attributed to the aggressiveness of white men. Uh, And generally, in general, white women went along with the fruits of the spoils that came along. Uh, J. Rogers pointed it out in his books on sex and race. Uh, The black female uh, during the slavery period was always given a slight edge uh, quote unquote, uh, because of the uh, of of the male's needs to uh, satisfy certain urges and of course uh, to function. You know the story of the house person and the mm-hmm. male person. But Ernie, the thing is that it's hard within for a woman to see the, having the opportunity to be raped as a slight edge. No, even I'm not though looking it might at it from the point of view. I'm, I'm perceiving nice it as from the male's point you. of view, and and I think that black men still perceive uh, uh, that that particular kind of thing is going on to this very day. And, uh, he f- and, I, as, and I am a black man, and I, I, I feel that, the, uh, that there is a, a need for more avant-garde type work uh, among black males and from black males toward trying to deal with this thing called white supremacy. Uh, I frankly do not consider sexism as a primary issue, as I do white supremacy as a primary issue. Well, there are groups like Black Men for the Eradication of Sexism that I think are the most avant-garde, and black men who are involved in a group called Men Stopping Violence, because they see that the very way we think about black masculinity is shaped by sexism. So it's impossible for black men to liberate themselves from white supremacy without critiquing masculinity and, and, and therefore critiquing 
um, sexism. I mean, I've been made fun of a lot for using the phrase white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, but part of why I use that phrase is, is to remind us that it's the way these systems of domination come together and converge that affect us, and that we can't ever realistically address our lives as black people if we're not willing to look at the way race and gender and class come together to determine who we are and what our lives will be. If black men only focus on white supremacy, they will never fully understand the truth of their lives. Because black men who think that they have to carry a gun and shoot another man aren't just doing that because of white supremacy. They're also doing that because of a certain kind of patriarchal notion of what it is to be a man. So black men have to critique that, too. Ernie, thanks for your call. I really appreciate it. Christina in Baltimore, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm calling because um, one thing that concerns me greatly about, I guess, the discourse of race um, in mainstream um, media today is the, the total absence of a dialogue that, um, where white people talk about the privilege of being white and the, the power or the access they have to certain resources. And... There seems, to, like whenever I'm in discussions about race or I go to lectures or so forth, it's always about, or the focus is always on the effect it is having on um, communities of color. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, I, just recently, I, I mean, I've been to several discussions in Baltimore, and it, it, it almost makes me incredibly angry because, I mean, I even see that, like, certain black lecturers that I've gone to don't even um, approach this, this topic or this focus of trying to get white people to implicate themselves and take some kind of responsibility. And I see this discourse going on in academia a little bit, but I was wondering, Belle, if you had any ideas of, if you, of how this kind of dialogue is going to get into mainstream culture, if it's going to be coming through film or if you even see it out there. Because I, from my experience, most white people just don't even know how to talk about um, whiteness and race in a critical way. Well, I think that it has come through film. I think that the Hollywood movie, A Time to Kill, white people in that movie express the kinds of attitudes towards black people that many white people have. They felt they should have certain privileges on the basis of being white. There is that beautiful moment when the white lawyer is talking to um, the character um, played by Sam Jackson, and says to him, and, and Sam Jackson tells him, "You may think you are liberal, but you don't really associate with black people. You don't have us at your home. You don't hang out with us. Um, my children don't play with yours." There is a profound critique of racism and the construction of whiteness right in that film. But how did most people respond to that film? Before I saw it, most people said to me, "Oh, it's really racist. It's really awful." But I want to, on that same point, like I was recently in a meeting um, with a large group of white people, and there were a few people of color, and they were talking about how they can make, how they can address white supremacy and change their group, the power, the dynamics in their group. And their way of talking about white privilege was talking about how they can bring more black people in Baltimore into their community, how they can bring more black lecturers and, you know, kind of um, diversify their group. And the entire discussion... Was about Not one what time they did they talk about white power or white privilege, and I'm like, you don't need black people in your group if you want to talk about white supremacy. White people can do that by themselves. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's about building relationships and working with people of color and so forth. But I just get, I mean, as a white woman, I get so angry at white people because they're, and I, and I realize because they don't, 
whiteness is so invisible and it's so difficult for them but, to talk about. Supposing you throw into that mix of the issue of class, and I know we're running out of time here, but when you throw the issue of class, it's very difficult to talk sometimes to people who are poor and working class and who just got laid off from their job and are trying to find money from their kids and see a black middle class kid get a scholarship and their kid can't get to college. And then you talk about privilege to a working class white person, it's a whole other number. Right. I also think, though, that, you, uh, and I have essays that address this in Killing Rage, that I set up in schools, Mark, with white kids who said, you're going to get the jobs and we're mm-hmm, not, mm-hmm. even though they weren't taught by any black women professors. So there was a cognitive dissonance between mm-hmm. what their reality actually was, that it's actually, I mean, the fact is the white working class in America does not look at the way, you know, privileged class whiteness is taking jobs through technology or, or what have you, and the sort of image of the middle-class black who's getting it all is not is, is such a false image and yet the white working class continues to cling to it so christine is absolutely right that we have to talk about whiteness more we have to talk about how does white privilege manifest itself because just as we heard from black men who are reluctant to see sexism as a problem many white people who are not who do not have class privilege are reluctant to see themselves as active in the perpetuation of white supremacy mm-hmm. because they feel they don't have any privilege. I can't tell you how many times black men laugh at me in my face around sexism and say, I don't have any privilege. And the same thing happens when a white working class person is saying, oh, when it comes to white supremacy, I don't have any privilege. Partially as a nation, and it was very troubling that President Clinton did not have the courage during his inaugural um, speech to really challenge this nation to confront racism as we see fascism growing worldwide, as we see anti-Semitism and white supremacy growing worldwide, that he didn't challenge us as a nation to actually actively learn more about what racism is and white supremacy. Because I think we're partially, we're retarded as a nation because we're clinging to the old notion that racism is about not wanting to have a black person live next door to you or discrimination, rather than that white supremacy is first and foremost about a way of thinking that one is superior to another group. Bill, we've run out of time. I'm sorry. Okay, that's okay, Mark. Thanks a lot. This has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us today. Bye. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our associate producer is Galvin Perry. Our editing producer is Ali Post. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Please visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>